0: Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's podbea dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent presentation at the World Social Science Association Conference titled COVID-19 Employee Perspectives and the Shifting Nature of Work. see here the title of my presentation today, I wanted to look at COVID-19 employee perspectives and the shifting nature of work. So I'm an organizational sociologist uh, and I I teach uh, organizational behavior, organizational leadership, HR related types of courses. Uh, this, This project was done in conjunction with a bunch of people from my department at Utah Valley University, my graduate assistant, Samuel Choi, And four other faculty, Maureen Andrade, Angela Schill, Jeff Peterson, and Kelly Hall. And we're in the middle of collecting a new wave of data, kind of, well, we started collecting the data when we thought the pandemic was pretty much over. (laughs) Um, And that turned out to not really be the case. Um, So we may have to do yet another wave. But uh, we wanted to be able to compare uh, based on some existing data that we had pre-pandemic uh, in relation to work quality characteristics, employee engagement, employee satisfaction, and then how that would compare to, um, where things are at now. You know, people talk about how we're in the middle of the great resignation, the great reevaluation. People are really taking stock as to their careers and their jobs. And do they want to continue to work where they're working? And frankly, a lot of people have just said, no, I don't want to work here anymore. And there's a variety of reasons for that. There's health, public health um, reasons behind that. And some people are frontline workers just decide, I don't get paid enough or treated well enough to put myself at risk. There's certainly that, but there's plenty of people who they just realize they have options. The labor market right now um, is such that people have options and uh, the reality is a lot of people saw the true colors of their employers during the pandemic some some employers stepped up and treated their people with empathy and compassion and tried to protect them in their health and others didn't and others really exploited their people and and employees didn't forget you know how their employers reacted to them during that time so these are all the kind of things that went into uh, the survey that we designed uh, for this project and I'll share some of that with you today. I'm not going to read through this whole big, long abstract slide. Um, just gives you a little bit of a background. What I'm going to be sharing with you, in addition to the framework and the theoretical approach, uh, is some data from pre-pandemic, from 37 countries, um, data from the International Social Survey Program. Uh, we, we took the core uh, survey items from that international survey and put that into our post-pandemic survey. That wasn't actually post-pandemic, it's turned out, turning out to be mid-pandemic. Um, and then added in additional sets of questions around leadership and leadership response during the pandemic, uh, employee engagement uh, characteristics, and, and a handful of other types of things as well. Um, but the data I'm gonna show you today is, is all from the International Social Survey. Uh, and ultimately, we want to explore some of the key drivers of employee satisfaction uh, and how the shif- how the nature of work has been shifting in, pe- in employees' conceptions of their work and their jobs and why they do what they do, how that's been shifting over the last several years. Now, my framing around all of this comes from a people-centric organizational perspective. Now, clearly, there are plenty of people who don't start with that assumption. But I believe the best organizations, the strongest organizations are those that value their people first and foremost. So uh, taking a human capital perspective where you look at your people, you look at your people as the most important asset in the company. They're the ones that produce the product or service that adds value to the market. They're the ones that ultimately are going to be creative and to innovate. So companies don't exist without good people. And so we need to treat our people well. That certainly means we don't exploit them, we don't take advantage of them, all of those sorts of things. Now, I know those sensibilities, um, You know, there's cert- plenty of people who agree with me in the business world, but there are plenty of people who don't agree with me as well, and, and that's why we see uh, differences in, in organizational cultures and, and approaches. Um, but we, we have seen you know the, the evolution of corporate social responsibility to stakeholder capitalism, the triple bottom line. And so, certainly, even if it's just for PR um, reasons, more and more organizations are acknowledging that they have to at least pretend to be people oriented. Otherwise, it's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them with their consumers, with their people. Um, And I would like to think that more and more employers are actually honestly, authentically trying to treat their people better and, and do right by their people. So, in this diagram, what you see here is really a a summary of a whole bunch of research uh, that looks at some of the outcomes of having a people-centric high-performance work system, uh, specifically looking at the role of interesting work or knowledge-sharing organizational culture and how that leads to bottom-line outcomes for the organization. Uh, There's tons more that we could talk about, but I just wanted to briefly share this one and just kind of show the pathways. And there's lots of academic literature that goes behind all these connection points. The bottom line is when you have work that is more interesting, uh, where people get excited, they wake up in the morning, they're excited to go to work, uh, that leads to more satisfied workers. That leads to lower levels of negatives, like low absenteeism, low turnover that reduces labor costs that leads to stronger bottom line, right? Uh, Higher profits. Um, So that's one kind of flow of really just the value, the, the bottom line, Dollars and cents, business case of why we need to treat people well and have good, meaningful work for people in an organization uh, is from the interesting job, job design kind of perspective. Um, Now, we're all sociologists. I think we all would argue even more importantly than the business case is the human case. We should be doing it anyways, regardless. But again, if if you're just a cold-hearted capitalist and you're like bottom line dollars and cents, that's what matters most. Guess what? It still makes the most sense to treat people well, design good work. Um, and on the other side, on the bottom of the uh, screen, you see knowledge-sharing economy or uh, culture. If you have a knowledge-sharing culture, that leads to greater levels of innovation, more productivity, higher quality, more satisfied customers, higher sales, higher profits, right? So again, it, it really has a positive bottom-line impact for the company. Uh, and it's a, you, there's a very strong business case for this. If we're not doing these things, if we're not designing really good, meaningful, purpose-driven work where people are passionate about their jobs, they show up interested in the work that they do, we're leaving money on the table, right? And if we're not creating a knowledge-sharing kind of culture where it's collaborative, where um, people can really uh, share with each other and build off of each other's ideas, We're not being as creative or innovative as we can or should be. We're not going to be as competitive in the marketplace as we could be. We're not going to add as much value to the marketplace. It's going to hurt us. We're leaving money on the table. So again, from the human case perspective and the business case perspective, it's a no-brainer. Like We just need to um, focus on people and have a people-centric organization. I do a lot of um, my academic work in trying to understand how things have shifted over the last 50 years Uh, of the global economy and and what trends are looking like and and kind of projecting into the future what we think things will look like in 5, 10, 20 years from now in terms of the nature of work. Um, This diagram comes from a report from the Institute for the Future, their Future Work Skills Report in 2020, where they identified really high-level meta drivers of change globally uh, in terms of social drivers. And then, and so you, I'm not going to read through all those, but you can see um, those big, huge drivers of change. And then on the inside, you see some of those transferable skills that researchers and pundits alike say future organizations are going to need. We need more people, not just leaders, not just the highest level strategic people within the organization, but like everybody in an organization and the future of work is going to have to have these skills. Um, and so that's really important. Things like cognitive load management, virtual collaboration, new media literacy, cross cultural competencies, adaptive thinking, sense making, design mindset, and design thinking, and transdisciplinarity. Uh, all of those are really important. And so, if we're again, if we're going to drive meaningful, purpose driven work and job design, we have to think about preparing people within our organizations. To develop these skills and as professors we need to help our students develop these skills so they're ready for the future of work okay so let's get into the model and the data the international social survey program there's four waves of work orientations data that goes all the way back to the 80s uh, the the data i'm sharing with you is from the most recent wave only um, though i have done a lot of work with some of the previous waves as well and this is the model So we have a variety of individual level control variables, uh, both individual controls, as well as organizational level controls. Uh, And then we have independent variables across different clusters. So work-life balance variables, intrinsic rewards, extrinsic rewards, and work relations. And then all of those feed into job satisfaction. Now um, I'm gonna show you on the next slide, uh, you can see just mean job satisfaction differences across countries. And I've actually done a lot of work trying to understand why we see the variations across countries. What are the geopolitical and socioeconomic drivers of differences across countries in terms of all these things? That's a whole lot of stuff we could talk about in another presentation another day. Um, But it is fascinating to see why you see similarities in levels of job satisfaction, the aggregate level of job satisfaction in some countries that you'd expect to be different, why you see differences in countries you expect to be the same, et cetera. Um, Anyways, it's kind of interesting. Um, One way to kind of look at it is uh, just age. So there's actually quite a bit of literature looking at job satisfaction based on age. Our research has been consistent with what much of the literature has shown in the past um, that you tend to have lower levels of job satisfaction at younger years, as you kind of go through midlife, it tends to go up a little bit, um, and and then really late in life, you can see over here. These are like past retirement age people who are still choosing to work. They tend to have pretty good levels of job satisfaction because they're probably only working if they need if they want to, right? They don't need to, they want to, and and so they're they're good. Here you can see, well, maybe not. I don't know how clear that it because it's small. But um, you can see as we built the model. Um, all of the different variables that went into it. Ultimately, on the, the final column, you can see uh, all of the variables in, in a one completed combined model. Um, their significance levels and beta coefficients, and uh, down at the bottom. So, for 37 countries, we had uh, just under 19,000 respondents. So, so good. You know, pretty good predictability. Um, but something else that we found to be really interesting. Was how what is what does the model look like in different countries? So just looking at adjusted R squared model predictability by country, huge variations, right? So like in the Philippines, it only accounts for fifteen percent of the variation in job satisfaction from our model, but then you go into places like Australia, and it's sixty three percent. So I could go way into more detail on this, but I'll I'll put it this way. Uh, A Western-centric model of job satisfaction tends to be more explanatory for Western types of countries, right? That kind of makes sense. That certainly plays out mostly, for the most part, in what we see here. And then there are some other reasons for that. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy Let me just get into specific things that I think employers need to be really thinking about and what we're, we're really interested as we're doing this follow-up survey in the middle of collecting more data. How do we design more meaningful work for our people? Employees, especially again, during the middle of this great resignation that we find ourselves in, people wanna do work that matters. They want to make a difference in the world. We talk about social impact um, in the work that we do. Uh, now, not everyone expects every last piece of effort in their workday to actually, you know, have some grandiose social impact. But we do generally want to see that what we're doing makes a difference. And when we can see that and make that connection, and when our employers can help us make that connection between our day to day and you know broader outcomes, broader goals, it makes a really big difference. And people are willing to put up with. You know, sometimes a, a a challenging relationship in the workplace, or they're willing to put up with perhaps even slightly lower than um, than average pay, uh, or those sorts of things when they have really meaningful work. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're in education, right? Like we can make more doing other stuff, but you know, we find a lot of meaning and purpose doing that. And that's probably why you guys are doing it too. Um, and so, so we need to really think carefully about that how we're designing jobs to be more meaningful. Uh, clearly from the data we see that job autonomy is one of the driving factors across all countries uh, that people want autonomy decision making autonomy they want autonomy in their work um, scheduling where they work of course over the last couple of years people have been working remotely um, now people are moving more towards hybrid arrangements in many cases uh, employees simply don't want to give up the flexibility and autonomy they had around their day and their schedule that they've, they got a taste for over the last couple of years. And now they realize that's something really nice. And when their employers are saying, Oh, no, now you have to come back in person. Uh, Everyone has to come back. People are saying, no, I'm not just coming back. Uh, Maybe I'll come in sometimes, but I'm not always going to come in. And so we have to think carefully about those things. Um, So work from home feeds into that. Uh, but it's not just work from home. It's it's schedule flexibility. It's how do I get to design my work day? And that's something that I know I've really appreciated over the last couple of years is, you know, if, if I wake up or I, I tend not to be a great sleeper. So if I wake up at four or 5 AM, you know what, I can hop on and work on stuff and I have a bunch of kids. So I can then Stop what I'm doing. I can help them get ready for their day, get them breakfast, help them get off to school, uh, and then work when they're gone. And then when they get home from school, I can help them with their homework and have dinner and stuff. And then if I want to work a little bit more after they go to bed, I can do that. And so this like traditional eight to five day um, is obsolete. And in fact, there's tons of research that shows. It's 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 completely antiquated, and so we need to get past that as organizations and how we design the work that we have our people do. Um, flexibility to deal with family issues—that's something that really arose during the pandemic. That people, uh, you know, all of a sudden had to work from home, but then their kids were schooling from home. All six of my kids were at home doing school while my wife and I were at home trying to work, and just the chaos that ensues in that kind of an environment. You just have to be flexible enough that you can let people live their lives and recognize that your whole life doesn't revolve around work. And that comes back to what I was saying earlier, that the employers that had empathy for their people and recognized the the unique challenges during the pandemic, their people didn't forget. Uh, But the, the flip side was true when people were jerks about it. Uh, and put the screws to them, they didn't forget that either. And and so that has implications. More more along the lines of how we can think through implications of of allowing flexibility for our our people around their work and uh, working weekends, things like that. Just consistency helps uh, with people, even if they're frontline workers, even if they're uh, people that need to be there in person. uh, There's a lot we can do in most jobs to design it in a way that's going to be more helpful for them. So with that, I've gone on too long. Any questions? That's that's a really really good point. And again, we've seen some some employers that have been good proactive about helping their people set boundaries mm-hmm. and respecting those boundaries, yeah. and others that basically take the approach: you're always on, and yeah. you're you should be accessible at any given point of the day. And that is toxic. Uh, that that will burn your people out so quickly. And it, it yeah, it's exploitation. So we don't want to go there certainly. Um, And so I would say, yeah, we want to focus on, on boundary maintenance, like creating healthy boundaries, maintaining those boundaries as leaders, we need to honor those boundaries. Uh, And it's like in my, you know, I'm a department chair and I have in my signature line at the bottom, you know, sometimes I am answering emails at 10 at night because that's just the way I just, broken up my day, but I have right at the bottom of my email, the first thing they'll see after whatever my message is, is that I have zero expectation that you actually respond to this. Mm -hmm. Like it's, this is just when I have the time to do it, but you know, I don't have any, so I'm very explicit about that. And I tell all the faculty in my department, um, no, like be reasonable in the amount of time it takes you to respond, but don't like, I don't expect you to be up at 10 PM answering my email or anything like that. Right. And, and so I'm just very, I try to be very proactive about that. Uh, and then also sometimes just keep, save a draft, right? Instead of actually sending it. Cause even if I say it, maybe they, they'll still feel the pressure to respond. Yeah. And so and that's an act in an academic setting. But in a corporate setting, I think that that tension's even greater. Right. Right. And so we, we just need to make sure we model it. One of the problems too, in, uh, in there's been this corporate trend towards unlimited PTO that you may be aware of and theoretically that's awesome so you just say we're not even going to worry about uh you know the number of days you get a year just take as much as you need that sounds wonderful in theory but in practice we already the US is already the lowest in the world <laughs> for for taking time off right. um and even when offered, even when offered. and so when, what what studies have found is in companies with unlimited PTO that people tend to take less time than they used to, right? Because they feel, well, and what they're doing is they're looking at their leaders and they're looking at the example of their leaders. And if, you know, on the one hand they're hearing rhetoric that you can take as much time off as you need, take a mental health day, whatever. But on the other hand, they see their leaders never taking a lunch they see their leader, never taking time off, never going on vacation ever. Guess what? They're not going to either. Right. And so as leaders, we need to model it for our people, healthy work-life balance, work-life integration, however you want to frame it. Um, we need to set boundaries for ourselves and our families as leaders and model that for our people. And, and sometimes just tell your people, Hey, go home, no, <laughs> stop, good. stop working. Like it's, yeah. it's okay. And, in I wish we saw more of that because you're right. I think especially in the U S we just have this tendency towards let's put the screws to them and see, get every last little ounce of productivity out of our people without any real thought for the consequences of that. The short-term benefits are greatly outweighed by the long-term negative consequences, but we tend to be so short-term oriented in the U S labor union participation rate in the U S is Quite low, <laughs> and 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 they te- it tends to be concentrated in certain type, types of jobs, right? Um, and so, essentially, it never came out as significant ever, <laughs> and so we kind of stopped using it. But um, but it is interesting to look at union versus non union jobs. The way it makes sense to me is that it, it really has more to do with the type of work that people are doing rather than whether it's union or non union that has the ultimate impact. Um, but you're right. I mean, ultimately, whether, whether it's the union that's providing the safety net and the protections for employees, or it's government law and regulation that's providing the safety net and protection for employees, or it's the company just doing right by their people and protecting their employees, people don't, employees don't tend to care how they're being protected just as long as they are. And when they're not, and when they're being exploited or taken advantage of, they don't like it. Um, and so whether it's a union thing or a non-union thing um, that hasn't seemed to really pan out, it would be super interesting to look at historical data though, you know, from like say the fifties or sixties when unionization rates were way higher. Um, Cause I imagine. Anything pre-Reagan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you'd see, see that more. And of course the, the whole nature of our economy has shifted so dramatically over the last 50 years. And we're so predominantly service sector type of workers now in comparison so you have like companies like goldman which you may even be referencing <laughs> but like they're they're known for they bring tons of people in and they churn through them and most people don't last more than a couple of years at of goldman but most people will go there for a couple of years and then they've kind of punched their ticket and now they have that experience they can kind of go anywhere right and so you see companies like that that they fully expect to churn through people and that's just part of their people's strategy. It's their business model, which is kind of gross, but, but that's their model and it works for them because they're so like, people want to create, like establish their career. Uh, and so they're willing to do it. Um, and, and there's other examples too. Right. Um, but finance law is another one where you see that kind of churn and, and people getting eaten up. Um, and it's hard. I don't know. Like I, I'm, I don't have any pretense of thinking that I'm going to be able to help change those industries, but, but, you know, sharing these insights and talking with people and helping um, leaders at the average organizations recognize this, I think is important. 80 plus percent of American workers work at small businesses. Um, And so most aren't working in those types of places. So they work at places where this stuff could be implemented pretty easily and where you're usually not expected to work 80 hour weeks. You know, you might work 50 hour weeks, but you're not going to be working crazy, crazy hours. Uh, and, and so just being thoughtful and proactive about how you design things can make a huge, huge difference. And then you start to show people, even if, even if they, they're, you know, they, they get the human case, but they're like, yeah, but it's business. It's not personal. And we just got to do what we got to do. Okay, well, then show them the business case. <laughs> like, right. like really speak the language that they're focused on and show them why it's going to be so much better in the long run. Right. Uh, and just, just like turnover cost alone. If you look at the expense to companies for churning through people, like if, you have, if you're have, if you Goldman and you have people knocking on your door constantly, then that's not a big deal. But you know, most companies, especially right now, it, it is so hard to get good people and then to keep them. And there's so much cost associated with that turnover uh, for middle management level kind of position uh, in just say your average organization. I mean, th- this number, I'm totally throwing out a number that it kind of varies on a bunch of particulars, but but the general rule of thumb is it's about a year and a half worth of salary for that position at the middle management level to replace them and to get the next person in, like go through the whole recruitment process, hiring, get them up to speed onboarded, and get them productive, like a year and a half's worth of salary of that person. So if you have someone leaving because they, well, like even if they don't choose to leave, even if you fire them, but if you have someone who leaves and you start to multiply that out across the whole organization, that is a huge expense. I, I did work with a, a some consulting work with a company about a decade ago. Um, And it wasn't middle management, it was just like straight out of high school, entry level kind of work. And they still estimated it cost them about ten thousand per position in terms of turnover cost. And they're and so they were spending like five million a year just because of the turnover, right? And you're like let's reduce that by 10%. <laughs> and, that, and now you can like pay people more, you can treat them better. And guess what? They're not going to leave as much. And so like some of these things are no brainers if you can just look at it from that perspective. But there's, yeah, there's no like quick fix to it. Um, and a lot of it's, you know, the slow slog of trying to shift US culture <laughs> perhaps. So anyways, thank you for the questions. <laughs> Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of US consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com/brands to learn how it do. That's p o d b e a n.com/brands and you could be the one talking instead of me.